Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 72 with Sam Hefter. Oh, and another thing that I do with tastings is I just invite my future clients to an, to an event. I'm not putting on like this separate tasting where I'm like cooking everything and, you know, walking them through each dish because it's so much extra time. And we used to do that at the restaurant. But um, I just invite them to an event. I get permission to do it, but they show up like at an actual wedding, but they walk through the buffet, they try all the food, they see how we put everything out. It costs me $0. Sometimes I'll like buy a bottle of wine and put it on their table. It's like kind of cheesy, but it, you know, they appreciate it. Okay. That's genius. That's genius and kind of weird, but I also am really loving that. No, it works so well. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. A warm welcome to all of our Chefs Without Restaurants listeners. This is your host, Chris Spear. If you're listening to this on release week, we just had Thanksgiving a couple days ago, and I hope you all had a good one, at least as good as can be. I know this year with COVID, a lot of people had different plans, and it looked a lot different than previous years, but I had a great Thanksgiving with my family, and I hope you did too. If this is your first time listening to the show, you might be wondering, what is Chefs Without Restaurants? So I have my own personal chef business called Perfect Little Bites, which I started about 10 years ago on the side and took to a full-time thing four years ago now. About the time that I started it full-time, I wanted to build a network to help other food entrepreneurs build and grow their business. But what it really was was just a a networking group where we could share gigs and lean on each other for support, uh, maybe share some best practices and things of that nature. And then last year, it turned into a podcast of the same name. We decided to sit down and talk to many of those food entrepreneurs. So we talked to a lot of caterers, food truck operators, uh, personal chefs, but you don't have to have your own business. Uh, we talk to people who are food writers, have cookbooks. We've had distillers on the show. We've even had restaurant chefs on the show. But uh, I recommend going back and listening to our shows. I, I really love them. I think they're great. And I think there is a lot of value. And even if you don't have a food business or work in the food business, I think there's a lot of great conversation. So please dive into the archives. Uh, we've been doing this show for a year now, and uh, this is episode 72. Wow, time flies. So this week, I have Chef Sam Hefter of Hefter Catering in Kansas City. Sam's catering business focuses on upscale taco bars. That sounds like fun to me. I, I love tacos. If you listen to the show uh, any amount of time, you know I love Mexican food and tacos. Uh, we talk about how he came up with that idea you know, doing one thing really well and why he doesn't think he's going to expand beyond the taco bars. We get into the setup, overhead, and profitability of his catering business. And I talk a little bit about that uh, as it pertains to my business as well. We also discuss doing tastings with clients. He's got a really interesting uh, way he does those. And I, I think you, you heard it. Uh, I teased some of that in the opening there. 
I really enjoyed talking with Sam. And he's very open about how he started his business and would love for people to reach out to him if they have any questions about starting their own catering business. As always, you can find all of his contact info in the show notes. Uh, He drops his email address in there. So please reach out to him if you have any questions. And now I'm going to jump out of here so you can listen to the show. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week. Welcome, everyone. This is Chris Spear with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. On today's show, I have Sam Hefter of Hefter Catering in Kansas City. Welcome to the show, Sam. How are you doing? Pretty good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. I love the show. So why don't we kind of start with your culinary backstory? Tell us a little bit about how you got into food and cooking. Was it something you were always into? I started off, um, I was at school at the University of Missouri, just getting my undergrad degree. I went there for, um, I think it was food science. And my freshman year, I got a job at a bar and it was uh, on campus. And we, it was like regular bar food, regular bar drinks that you would expect on a college campus. And they hired me for the kitchen. And in this kitchen, it's like, you didn't necessarily get hired as a grillman or as saute. You just kind of got hired to work the kitchen. Uh, It was like a minimum wage paying job. And, you know, for the first few months, I was the new guy. So they would just kind of throw me on dishes. But slowly, I started learning the stations. And a few months into it, I was like, wow, this is really speaking to me. And it was probably going into my sophomore year, I think. I switched my major to hospitality management. And yeah, I just kind of fell in love with it then. So I went through college. I worked at that bar for the four and a half, five years that I was there. I learned a ton. And then I went to culinary school for one year. I was able to get an associate's degree. I went to Johnson & Wales in North Miami, Florida. Because I already had my bachelor's degree, I could go for one year, get the associates. So I did that. And then when I was in Florida, I was getting towards the end of my culinary degree or yeah, getting my culinary degree. And I was at a job fair and I got an interview with Hillstone restaurant group. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they own the restaurants called Houston's. Oh yeah, they I have know Houston's, yeah. Sure. So Houston's is owned by Hillstone. And when I was in Florida, I was working at a Morton Steakhouse. And I was their assistant food and beverage manager on the weekends and I was serving at night during the weekdays to try to make some extra income. And it, we shared a parking lot with the Houston's. I had never been to Houston's, but Every night we were like super slow, just kind of like waiting for somebody to stroll in. And Houston's had a line out the door every single day. So as soon as they approached me and I got that job interview, I knew that that restaurant was going to be, you know, super busy. So long story short, they hired me and um, they were offering I think if I remember it, my starting salary was $55,000 a year, which coming out of culinary school like that to me was, I was not expecting that. That's an insane amount. I went to Johnson and Wales and I came out and I was making $11.50 an hour or something like that. Totally. And, you know, I think that's what, I don't know, at least where I was at school, that was kind of what everybody was thinking was, okay, once I finished culinary school, 
I'm going to go be a line cook, hopefully at some prestigious restaurant. I'm not going to get paid a lot of money, but I'm just going to work my way up the ranks that way. And, you know, looking back, I don't know if it was my ambition that was searching for a job like this, or if, if something just came across my way and I took it and they started my training in New York. I was in East Hampton, New York. And training was supposed to last like five or six months. And basically they were training me to be what they call an assistant culinary manager. And that company, they basically call, you know, instead of referring it to as an executive chef or a kitchen manager, they call it a culinary manager. And in these restaurants, you know, I think there's a, there's a difference between a kitchen manager and a chef. And to me, the main difference is an executive chef is usually somebody who is going to be creating their own recipes. Whereas a kitchen manager is somebody who is going to be managing whatever recipes are already in place and making sure that everything is executed properly. When I was with this restaurant group, I was a kitchen manager, or at least that's the position that I was hired to train for. A few months into training, I got really lucky and the chef that they, or the culinary manager they had put in place or at that restaurant in East Hampton, New York, got let go. He just wasn't working out. And through my whole training process, I made sure to pick up as much you know, I tried to learn everything that I could. And in that restaurant, we baked all of our own bread from scratch. Every burger bun, every sandwich bread, sandwich bun, um, every single piece of protein was cut in-house, whole fish. All of our ribeyes were cut in-house, New York strips, like you name it, we did it ourselves. And I got to learn all that, which was so cool. Um, but when that chef got let go, you know, I really... Um, pushed for that position. I told them like, Hey, I can do this. And they gave me the position. So I was working, I was 23 years old and I got hired basically to be the head culinary manager at this restaurant in East Hampton, New York. And it was like this huge opportunity for me. From there, every six to nine months, the company would move me to another one of their locations. And when they moved me, there wasn't, uh, there wasn't like, uh, Hey, we're going to move you next month. Like pack your bags. It was like, they would call me on a Tuesday and it was like, Hey, we need you in Houston on Thursday. And I'm like, I'm young, I'm single. Now's the time to just say yes to stuff. So it's like, okay, I'll do it. Um, the company was able to make the move very simple, but with this whole like moving thing, in three years, I was the culinary manager at four of their restaurants. And while the menu was similar at each restaurant, it's just like every time I entered a new kitchen, there was just this like whole different world of problems and different things that I needed to figure out how to manage. And I got my butt kicked working for that company, but I learned so much. And, you know, if I could go back in time, thinking of doing it all over again sounds like such a big task, but I definitely would. So do you think you jumped into it too soon? Like in hindsight, do you think you were experienced enough or would you have been better off maybe doing a few more years working under people? So now that I'm a little older, I've thought about this and I don't think I was really ready for all that responsibility. 
And looking back on it, it seemed like it was such a toxic environment because of how hard everything was. It's like, okay, so for example, the restaurant, um, when I was in New Orleans, I worked at one of the restaurants, we did just shy of $9 million a year in revenue. Everything's made from scratch. And basically every little detail of the food had to be perfect. If it wasn't perfect, I was getting chewed out by my general manager or um, somebody from regionals would come in town. That was the worst. But there was such this pressure put on me to make sure that every single thing was perfect that, you know, I was working probably 90 hours a week, sometimes, sometimes more. But there, I can think of many months where I didn't take a single day off because I just couldn't. It just like wasn't an option. And looking back on it, I think that I was not the best manager that I could have been. And my GM used to always tell me, you know, you need to teach other people how to do these things properly and hold them accountable so that you can set yourself free. But in my head, it was always like, okay, this person's not doing this right. I'm just going to do it myself. And it was so hard for me to get out of that mentality. And, you know, so looking back on it, I think the environment there was more toxic than it needed to be because I simply just didn't really understand how to manage people properly. I was too young. Oh, definitely. You know, I also think you went to culinary school the same one as I did. I went to Johnson & Wales in Providence. But I think you expect that when you work in a kitchen, everyone there is going to have your same work ethic and have the same experience, right? So I went somewhere, I was 22. uh, And then you start working with these people who just need a job, right? Like I know you've seen people in the kitchen who are there just because they need a job. It's not their life. They're not reading cookbooks. They they don't care. And then you move up the ladder. Now you're managing these people and the frustration of like, why are you not committed uh, the same way I am. I know that's something that I went through and, and that's really hard. You know, I wasn't ready for it. I, I took this job as essentially like a line cook uh, right out of culinary school. And within six months I was like the sous chef. And now I'm managing these people who've been there for years and nobody totally. was listening to me. I was 22 years old and I just expected that they were going to do the job that they had been hired to do. Yep. And that was another thing I struggled with too. When I was 23, some of my employees who I didn't hire, you know, I would get moved to one of these restaurants. They had been working there for 10 years and they're like, well, who the hell is this guy? And I'm, you know, some of these guys are in their forties or fifties and all of a sudden I'm telling them what to do. And I think that was another reason for me to earn my respect with them. I knew that I had to just work as hard as I could and just show them that I'm going to put in the time. I'm not just going to point fingers and tell you what to do. That was the only way that I knew how to gain that respect, but it was hard after that. So my last restaurant with them was in Kansas city. And so I'm with the company for like three and a half years at this point. And I had no plans on leaving. Um, I was making really good money. I was running the kitchen here and I was starting to kind of figure out how to get the kitchen running smooth and get my life back a little bit. And they announced that they were closing the restaurant. There's so many weird rumors as to why. I'm still not really sure why they closed the restaurant. But I also met my, who's now my wife, I met her here. She was a server. 
we weren't supposed to date servers, but you know, it happens. So when they announced that they were closing the restaurant, I decided that this was the opportunity for me to be done. You know, they wanted to move me on to the next one and the next one. And this was my time to get out. So then there was another restaurant in town who had been in contact with me for probably a year prior to that. They wanted me to work for them. And it was called, it's called the Rock Hill Grill. It's a well-known restaurant in Kansas City. They hired me as their executive chef. And this is the first time that I am not only managing the kitchen, but I'm also in charge of creating new menu items. And, you know, like there's no playbook or really solid recipe book for how this food's supposed to be done. It was up to me. I worked for them for about a year. And during that time, they also opened a second restaurant in the plaza in Kansas City. And I was in charge of opening that restaurant. So from for that restaurant, I really created the entire menu from scratch. And that was a whole nother learning experience. I managed that kitchen for about six months and ran that as the executive chef. And then Rock Hill Grill, they wanted me back. They wanted me to be done with this restaurant, the plaza. They made me this like ownership opportunity deal to come back to Rock Hill. And I took it. And it seemed like at first glance that this was a great opportunity. Um, You know, if I worked there for four years, then I would have a third ownership along with the two other guys that own the restaurant. And like for, I think for most chefs in this industry, like that sounds like a home run. Yeah, definitely. And so here I am, I'm making good money and I'm just thinking like, okay, I'm just going to keep working to the bone and do whatever I have to do to be, I guess, quote unquote successful because that's what I thought I needed to do. When I got back to that restaurant, I worked there for about another year. And I remember in the last few months is when my wife and I, we had gotten married. We knew we were going to have kids soon. And here I am. I'm, I guess I was 28, I think. And I could just feel at that. I mean, there was so much pressure on how much time I needed to give to the restaurant that it was so difficult for me to find time to myself. I mean, I was scheduled six days a week in the kitchen. That's a lot. And, you know, it's a lot. And then, you know, my one day off was Wednesday. And if some, if, oh yeah, so this restaurant also had two event spaces in-house. So we had a full dining room and two event spaces. And it was quite often that we would have two of going on at the same time that the dining rooms open. All the food came out of one kitchen. So if there was like a big event scheduled on Wednesday and Wednesday's my day off, well, guess what? Like I'm working. There's no way around it. So what happened was the final straw for me, I, um, well, I guess there were two things that led up to me leaving and starting my own catering company. I was catering a friend's wedding out of the kitchen where I worked. My wife and I wanted to give it to them as a gift. And so we just put together this taco bar. Like they had 180 guests. We said, hey, I'm going to use the kitchen where I work. I took the day off and we're just going to put together this really nice taco bar for you. And they're like, okay, cool. This is awesome. You don't have to pay a caterer. So my wife and I did this taco bar at her wedding. And afterwards, I crunched the numbers 
And I was like, Joy, you know, my wife's name is Joy. If we had charged just $12 a person, which is like dirt cheap catering, we would have profited like it was something like $1,200. Cause I'm looking at, it, I'm like, man, this food is so cheap like this. And so we realized that there's like an opportunity there, but we just, uh, I've kind of put that on the back burner. And then the final straw at this restaurant, I had, you know, my wife and I got married, never took a honeymoon. There was no time. It was a year later and I approached the other owners who we were supposed to be owners together. Um, that's a whole nother story. But, you know, I told him, I said, hey, my wife and I are going to take our honeymoon. We're going to do it in February, March, whatever it was. And they said, you know what? I don't think it's really a good time for you to be doing that. And here I am, like, am I really going to live my life this way and just like let people tell me no all the time? And, you know, just so the next day I put in my note, I gave them a six week notice. I, I put down the whole ownership deal and it's like, you can take it. And uh, I left. It felt really good. Congratulations. Thank you. But that's it's hard that's, to do. No, it is. That's scary. I mean, I was at a job for 10 years, but looking at those things, like I've talked about on other shows, both of my parents passed away while I was working there. And while I got some time to go up there when they were sick and, and to deal with things, I, I feel like there was this major guilt trip about the time I was taking, you know, and I had been promised a raise and a promotion. And then your annual review comes up. It's like, well, you know, you didn't finish doing the new catering menu because you were taking care of your mom who's dying of cancer. You know, it's like, and they don't care. Yeah. Like really, really you're, you're going to not give me what you promised because like one thing I didn't get done this year because I was taking care of my parents who were dying, you know, and, and they don't. And, you know, one year I went on vacation to San Francisco and something stupid happened in the kitchen and, and the vacation was essentially ruined. Like every day I'm getting phone calls from my GM, from my employees, from corporate HR. It's like, I can't take five days and go away. Like mm -hmm. we, we have a staff of like hundreds of people there. Like someone's got to be able to take care of this. Like, don't call me. For some, I don't know why it has to, why it is that way. But in this industry, it's like, if you have one of these high up positions and something goes wrong, it's, it's like, it's your fault. It's always it, at least for me, it felt like it was always my fault. This thing I'm telling you about, my sous chef did something while I was on vacation and I still got a corporate write-up for it because somehow it, it happened in the kitchen. I'm like, I'm literally on the other side of the country. How am I being held responsible for something my sous chef did who she knew she wasn't supposed to do? Like I told her that and the other staff there knew it and told her that I didn't want it done. And it still happened. And now I have like a, a write-up in my file. Like that's ridiculous. She's a grown adult. Hold her to that standard, but not me. But anyway. I feel your pain on that. There's, there seems to be like always this trickle down effect, at least, you know, you worked for corporate and the company that I worked for Hillstone, they're technically not corporate, but they function like corporate. They have 50 restaurants. It was always, you know, somebody at the very top is upset about something that trickles down to a regional or whoever, and it trickles down and it trickles down because it can never be your, it, you know, that person never wants to take the responsibility. So like, if you're on vacation, it's so much easier for, you know, the regional manager to blame the chef, whether you're there or not. And your general 
manager probably couldn't handle it. So it's your fault. So I left Rock Hill and I left knowing that we were going to give this catering company a shot. And I've never started a business. You know, I didn't know anything about it. Um, I knew that I should probably get an LLC because that's what Google says, <laughs> you know, and I saw, I was like, okay, as long as I like figure out how to pay my taxes and don't do anything illegal, I should be fine. So I put together this like taco bar catering concept and I had a whole menu put together. It's pretty simple. There's three tiers. Tier one was 13 per person. Tier two was 16 per person. And tier three was 19 per person. In Kansas City, that is a really um, affordable catering package. I know it varies city to city. But here, you know, there are some well-known catering companies uh, for like weddings and big corporate events. And if you go with one of them, they'll do whatever you want, you know, whatever menu you want, they'll do it. But you're going to pay probably 30 or $40 per person for the food. So I was like, okay, if I just do taco bars and do the same thing every time, I can come in at a much better price point and still put out a great quality product and it saves money for the client. And then I can also be more profitable. My inventory is like so low, like literally right now at my kitchen, the only food I have on hand is I have dry beans and white rice. Everything else, I bought the amount of pounds that I needed. It's all cooked, gone. Like there's nothing sitting around. So you're running it like a restaurant because I think that's a challenge with catering is, you know, catering companies do everything under the sun. So this client on Monday wants Italian and you bring in all this stuff. And on Tuesday, they want Mexican. On Wednesday, they want French or totally. something. So you're running it like you had a Mexican restaurant where you only have the, the Mexican staples on hand. And Yeah, but even more simplified is my, so my menu has three tiers. Each tier comes with an appetizer, entree, and dessert. So on tier one and tier two, or on tier one, the appetizer is a chips and salsa bar. On tier two and tier three, the appetizer is a giant cheese board. And I learned working at Rock Hill, we used to charge like $9 per person for a cheese board. Well, I knew that as long as I cut the cheese like really thin and just had a big variety of cheeses, it would cost like a hundred bucks to put out a cheese board that we'd charge like a thousand dollars for. So I took that as my big appetizer opportunity. And, you know, when you're putting out a buffet, like there's no shame in cutting the cheese thinner or smaller. If people want more, they'll take more. It's not like you're robbing somebody. So that's why I did the cheese board. And then for tier one, it's uh, chips and salsa, um, which is like, it's a, I do this beautiful display, but like at the end of the day, it's just chips and salsa. And then my desserts for tier one and tier two is a homemade cookie bar. I have one cookie recipe. I make a big batch of cookie dough. I divide it into thirds. One third gets chocolate chips. One third of it gets M&Ms. The other third gets white chocolate chips and cocoa powder. So it's like a chocolate cookie. Simple. And then my tier three desserts are petty fours. We do key lime, cheesecake, brownie, and carrot cake. And normally I think it sounds like a lot of work to do these petty fours. But really one thing I've learned is I can do a wedding for 200 people and they're probably going to eat a hundred petty fours total. 
people don't eat a lot of desserts at, at these events. And so I bake these desserts in sheet pans and I, I cut them into little squares, like one inch squares each. And, you know, I put whipped cream on them and stuff to make them look fancy. But um, whatever I don't use, I wrap it up in plastic and freeze it. Because I learned working at Rock Hill, some of these desserts that we would do would freeze really well. So there now the four Petty Four desserts that I offer are the ones that I know freeze very well. So then, and then the taco bar, the main entree, is the same for all three tiers. There's very subtle differences between each one. But so like I'm literally doing the exact same thing for every event. Whereas like even a Mexican restaurant, you don't know what somebody's going to order ahead of right. time. But I know it's the same thing every time. Do you ever get tired of it? Do you wish there was more variety or are you still fulfilled culinarily? My Okay, so my culinary like my need and fulfillment has changed it used to be where i would want to like even at home i want to cook something that's like new and exciting and something where i'm like super creative and you know kind of like chefy in that way and now i've moved in the direction of like i take a lot of pride in how consistent i can cook something now that's that's what like gets me excited and at home i really like cooking with stuff that most pe- people won't cook with like broccoli stems or i think you like chicken hearts right you've talked I about love that all the organ meats Dude, yeah i always have I a freezer full it. of stuff i i buy chicken hearts from uh we, there's a local farm and they sell like free range turkey and chicken and stuff i buy a ton of their heart i love it the chicken hearts I think it's a balance of finding also profitability and workflow. You know, when I first started, I was doing it on the side. So I wanted to be super creative and adventurous and do all this stuff, right? Because I was doing like one gig a week and then two gigs a week. And then you move into full time and it's like, wow, I, like I made gluten-free crackers from scratch the very first time I had a gluten-free customer. Like, yeah, not that's, worth ins- it. that's insane. Like now you just go to Aldi and it's like two fifty for a bag of gluten-free crackers Dude. and- and they're all far these, and they're far and away better than than what I could make. I buy all of my crackers for the cheese boards at Aldi. They're incredible and they're cheap. Yeah, they have that like blend, that little box with the like the five or six kind of crackers. Oh yeah, in there. I use I it's use it like all the time. Two dollars. Yeah, Me and if too. you're doing a charcuterie and cheese board there, like just today, oh, yeah. I, cut, I grabbed some of their manchego and I'm I'm using some of that. It's like it's three twenty nine mm-hmm. for a wedge of manchego. You can't beat that. Yeah, no, their their cheese and cracker selection is incredible. Um, okay, but profitability. So the way this works is I do one event a week, maybe two. And that was all part of the design also. I figured, okay, if I just don't hire a chef and don't hire anybody, now I have people that help me serve on the day of an event. So I'm not like serving it all myself, but there I pay them as 1099s. I pay them 50 bucks out of pocket for each one. And then they get all of the tip. There's always a gratuity. They usually make like 150 bucks a piece. It's like not expensive for me. Great for them. Done. Um, But I do all the prep myself and I do one event or two events a week. Now my profit margins are right, right around 65%. 
That's after paying for everything. And part of this formula was finding a kitchen space that I could rent out at a reasonable price. Um, there's a commissary kitchen I use here in Kansas City. It's called Food Truck Central. And it's designed for mostly food trucks because they have to have a commissary kitchen. But I'm in there. I have my own storage unit. I pay $225 per month to use the storage unit. And it's, it's like the size of like an average bedroom. And I have my upright refrigerator in there. I have a freezer in there and all my shelving, all my stuff I keep there. So that's 225 a month. Everything else, I pay $20 per hour to use their kitchen. So if I like take a week off or if I'm not busy for whatever reason, I'm not like bleeding money on this like huge kitchen overhead and stuff like you would be in a restaurant, like all these people who are dealing with right now because of COVID. You know, it's 225 bucks a month is what I'm like out if I'm doing no business. That's, that's worst gotta, case. And that's easy to make it back on these gigs, I'm sure. It's yeah, that's not a big deal. So after paying for that and my $20 per hour that I use for each event, my net profit is about 65% of each sale. So on average, my average wedding size is like 200. If I'm doing a wedding for 200 people and they purchase my mirror, which is $16 per person, that's $3,200. What's 65% of that? I don't know, like 2,000 Yeah, yeah, close to 2,000. Yeah, just doing some quick. Okay, so that's my profit on on the week. And like, you know, you multiply that by 52 weeks, I'll like, that's a pretty decent salary. And um, the only reason this works is because I've simplified everything down to just like one thing. And I hope somebody reaches out to me after this podcast to, to, you know, look for advice or something, because like, I feel like there are so many other people and chefs that can do this. You know, this isn't like that hard. And my food too, because I do the exact same thing every single time, I'm fine tuning the recipe a little bit each time. And I'm not guessing anymore. Like I'll go into the kitchen. now, I'll put my headphones in, pop on a podcast and just like zone out and crank it all out because I keep, you know, I've done it so many times. Um, and the other thing too, my startup costs were about, a, they were probably about like $15,000 total. But had I done it again and I didn't make the mistake, you know, of course I bought stuff the first time around and realized like, oh, I should have done this differently. If you go do it all over again, I, I don't, I'd have to cost it out, but I really think for 10 grand, I could get everything. I'm sure. Done. And um, I just, you know, the whole personal chef business is such a great opportunity for people to try to go out on their own and, you know, not work for somebody. And then, you know, somebody like you, if you do a great job, you get to charge more money. And, you know, obviously your clients, they like you. So they're like, hey, I'm going to use this guy again. So if you do a better job, you make more money. When you work in a restaurant, if you do a great job, good luck. You know, eventually somebody might give you a raise. I was getting 2% a year at the end of my time with my last job. Like that doesn't even keep up with inflation, you know? No. 
It doesn't make sense. And I really, I hope, you know, it's like so tragic what COVID has done to all these restaurant businesses. And I've been affected too. I was supposed to have a wedding this weekend, Kansas City put a 10 person, you know, limit on events. So I literally from now until March, I've had to postpone everything. And it sucks. But um, and there are so many restaurants that are just like suffering right now. And a lot of them probably won't make it. But um, hopefully, when this all clears, we're going to see, I hope we're going to see a change in the industry and a change in how um, people value their employees. Because like, it's like if you're a chef, I, I don't know what chefs actually make in this city, but I think an average kitchen manager chef is making like 40 grand a year, maybe 50. And it's just like in this industry, it's just known that you're not going to make a lot of money unless you like have this, you know, really incredible opportunity. But most of the chefs just aren't going to get paid well. And I think everybody in the industry is like, you know, I'm not really doing it for the money. Like I love cooking or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it doesn't have to be uh, either or, right? No, it doesn't. You can be, you can love cooking and make a good living. Like why can't that coexist? Well, it's like when you didn't want to talk about the profitability and you thought your potential customers might be upset, but like, isn't every industry profitable? Like think about an oil change. Yeah. Like if you bought, you know, what's a quart of oil cost and if you did it yourself, you know, I paid $70 the last time I had my oil changed, I think. Or, you know, an attorney who sits behind the desk and That's you're paying true. them like $200 an hour. I think every industry, if you're the best at what you do, you charge what you can. And it's like, well, if you don't want me to make a profit, then I don't know, go somewhere else. But yeah, no, that's, that's true. Very true. I try, I try to make it seem like to my clients that I'm like super busy all the time. I don't know why I do that. I just don't want them to know that I'm literally doing one event a week. I don't know why. Like the, maybe that shouldn't matter. But I know. I know what you're talking about. Cause it seems like then you're not a real caterer or whatever, you know, like people will say, and I think it didn't start with my customers. It started with my peers where people would say like, how often do you work? And it's like, Oh, like two to three days a week. And everyone's like, Oh, must be nice. Now that you only have to work like two or three days a week. And, and you know, there's so much that goes on behind the scenes though. Like one event, if you have a, a an event so that's much. for like 200 people, you're still going to spend multiple days because by the time you're doing all the prep and getting that ready, totally, that's what it takes to do it. So again, it's not like you had six days off and one day of work that, that, you know, $2,000 sure. profit is going to have to stretch for the whole week. So that's also very true. Are you using all of your own cookware? Mm-hmm. I use all my own cookware. I used to bring all my own china. During COVID, I changed that. I reached out to all my uh, existing customers and past customers and said, you know, for your safety and security, what do you think? And 95% of them said that they would be more comfortable using their own stuff, which was nice for me because I was washing all my dishes at my house. So I would not take them to a commercial kitchen. And my wife said, you know, do you really want to be dragging in dishes into our house that people have been eating on and and the saliva on the plates and forks? Like I still have to rinse them there, but we feel like for our comfort and safety that it's a lot easier to just load them in the dishwasher there. So I'll glove up, rinse them off and load them and wash them there. And now that I look at it, while I do like serving on a lot of my plates in China because I have some really cool serving pieces. 
it has been nice to not have to lug like all oh, I bet. China and stuff. So um, much easier. But as you get into bigger parties, I mean, if you're doing a party for 12 or 15 people, you know, and it's five courses, most people don't have that at their house. So I have to bring right. some stuff. But I, I did a wedding yeah. uh, a couple of weeks ago where they, they purchased really nice disposables. Like it was their wedding and they didn't care. They bought the heavy duty plastic and stuff. I'm like, cool. I have no problem with that. And then just take mm-hmm. it, drop it in the trash can and be done. That was awesome. Yeah. You know, when I started this catering company, that's what we were doing. Like at the very beginning, we were buying those heavy duty plastic disposables. And obviously it's super wasteful um, and it costs money. Uh, Now we use real plates. So after every wedding, I'm washing like sometimes if it's 200 people, I'll be washing 600 plates. But, you know, where I rent at my kitchen space, I have a full, you know, dishwasher. A, A regular dish machine you can just run them through. Yeah. A yeah. regular dish machine. And uh, you know, it'll take me like two or three hours to do dishes some nights, but it's usually only once a week. And, you know, I'm by myself. And like, you're not like, it used to drive me nuts when one of my dishwashers would like not scrub something all the way. And you don't find out until like eight hours later when you go to grab the pan. You're like, oh, so I'm, you know, I clean it all myself. If something's not clean, it's my own fault. Yeah, li- believe No me. one to get mad at doing the dishes is my least favorite part. I've always thought like, oh, maybe it would be worth it just to swing by like one of these commercial kitchens. I like, go by my church at 11 o'clock at night. I have a key, let myself in and just run everything through the dish machine. That would be so much nicer. Maybe something to think about for the future. So you have no employees, right? It's just you except for the days that you go out on an event, just your service staff. Otherwise, just yourself. Correct. And you know, once in a while, somebody will ask me like, okay, what happens if you get sick? And you know, if like worst case scenario, if I got COVID, I would have to call off the event. Like, I don't know what else to do, but you know, in the 10 years that I've been working in the restaurant industry, I've never called out, you know, a day of work once. So I don't plan on doing it now down the road. I would love to grow it and I would love to not be doing everything myself someday, but in order to get started, that's how I had to do it. You know, that's what made sense. Yeah, I, I'm in the same boat. I haven't had to do it uh, yet, but that always worries me. I have no employees. I've been doing this four years now, full time. But I do always think like, what if someone's hired me for like a, their Christmas holiday party at their house and it's like 15 people and then I just wake up and feel sick? Like, what do you mm-hmm. do? I have has a, that happened? It has not. Ha- it has not happened. It has not happened. I'll tell you, this is a funny story. This is the worst. It was like last summer. I was having varicose vein surgery on my legs, like having veins removed, right? I don't know. I've never missed a gig uh, or like the planning of a gig. I booked this surgery the day of an event, right? I'm looking at my- Was that intentionally? No, not at all. You made a mistake. So the, the event was not on my calendar. I don't know. We had been going over emails. I was really busy. I had planned a menu. So like- I'm having this dinner on a Friday and I booked the surgery for a Friday morning. It's Thursday night at nine o'clock. And I just had this feeling and I went through my emails and I said to my wife tomorrow, I now, so I, I haven't done anything, no shopping. I haven't prepped. It's like nine o'clock at night. And I said to my wife, you're not going to believe this. I have a dinner tomorrow for eight people. I said, I I've done nothing. And I've got this surgery. Like, and she said, what are you gonna do? I said, I don't know. I'm going to figure it out. And I went and I just went to Walmart. We have a 24 hour Walmart. They had like almost everything I needed. And I bought all the stuff and thank God I have people who can help me. One of my former sous chefs helps on a gig 
and I emailed him and I said, Mike, um, I'm in a jam. Uh, you know, t- tomorrow I can go to this gig, but I can't really carry things. I can't really stand. Is there any way that you can cook and I'll pay you, you know, I paid him like 300 bucks or something. And he said, yeah. So that next day I went and I got the surgery done and I told the doctor and he's like, oh no, you can't be working. You should be in bed all day. So I went home and I lay down for like three hours. We showed up to this place. I loaded my car. My wife loaded the car. I drive to the place. He meets me there. He carried all the stuff in. And then I just sat down in the kitchen in a kitchen chair and just directed him. And thank God he worked for me for like five years. These were mostly recipes that I knew. And I could just say, you know, throw in a tenderloin. Okay, we're going to do Brussels sprouts, you know, cut them, get them in the oven and some bacon fat. But I, I couldn't believe that, that I had booked a gig on the day that I had surgery. And I was afraid my legs were going to bleed because they said, you know, if you get up and walk around, Jeez. you could have it open and have, you know, blood coming down. So I was like triple wrapped with gauze on my leg. That's the only time anything like that has happened. And thankfully, I had someone to bail me out. I really don't know what I would have done if he couldn't have cooked for me. But yeah, it, that's, that's the worst that's happened to me. Oh yeah. The the moments like that, you know, working literally by yourself like this, those are scary. There was one weekend, you know, when COVID hit, I had to move so many events. And so it's like, I'm getting all these emails to postpone events and I'm postponing them. I'm 99% sure I'm marking them all correctly in my calendar. I'm like, man, but if I miss one of these, I'm screwed. And there was one week, I think it was in October, where somebody emailed me on like Monday, they're like, Hey, you know, this is our final guest count for Saturday. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I don't even have this on the calendar. Like if you didn't reach out to me, I would have just completely not been there. So a little different than getting sick, but you know, no, I think that's hard. And like, I don't have an, it sounds like you don't have an admin person. I don't have an admin. Oh no, no, no. Yeah. I'm admin. I'm also the accountant. Yeah. Same. But like, uh, I guess this was last month. Like I had a guy and we'd been going back and forth for a while over Saturday versus Sunday. And I adamantly told him like, I couldn't do Saturday. I had a gig. He said, Sunday's fine. We agreed on it and everything. And then I guess the Saturday event I had thankfully canceled for some reason, but we didn't change the date. And I reached out to him on Friday and said like, you know, I'll be there at four 30 on Sunday. He's like, you mean Saturday? And I'm like, no Sunday. And he came back and was like, pretty upset and cursing at me. And I sent him like screenshots of all the emails. He's like, Oh, my bad. Um, can you do tomorrow? And I was like, well, now I can, but, um, I have not planned for that. Like, again, like I had hired staff to help me on that Sunday and we just had to like hustle. And again, I hadn't, I, I wasn't ready for it, um, because I was doing a gig on Friday. So now it's like, okay. So like tomorrow I've got a a party for 15 people I hadn't planned on and you just pull it out and get it done. But sometimes those things get lost in, in translation somewhere. Yeah. And you don't want to tell him no, no, not at all. Lose out on that and upset him. You're like, yeah, I guess I'll bend over backwards and do whatever I need to do, even though you made a mistake. And also you need the money, right? Like this was like one of of the, one of the big paydays. It was like my biggest event that month. And if I didn't get that, um, you know, I would have been fine, but, uh, I was really hoping for that one. So you made it work, you know? That's what we do. I think in the food business, we make it work more often than Always. people in other oh industries. Gosh. Like the the magic that we pull off, whether you're in a restaurant or doing your own thing, the stuff that we can do in a kitchen, I don't think people know how we get it done. That just, I, that adrenaline kicks in and you figure it out. I completely agree. I, I can think of multiple times where like we're about to do, you know, two parties or something. This is when I was in the restaurants 
And then like my, one of my prep guys is like, Hey chef, uh, the oven's not working. I'm like, what do you mean? The oven's not working. It's just not hot. Like, fuck, you know, (laughs) I got to like call somebody to fix the oven. I need the oven. I don't have an oven. What am I going to do? And then, yeah, you figure it out. Always. Restaurant impossible for sure. So any chance you'll branch out beyond the taco bars or, I mean, don't broke, what is it? Don't fix what's not broken. Yeah. I don't plan on it. My, my kind of long-term vision, I would love to like franchise the opportunity for other people to do it in other cities. Um, I do not want to add more food items to it. Like the, the recipe is working. Um, and people ask me sometimes, they're like, Hey, you know, can you do, you know, I get random questions for random food at a specific event. And I just tell them like, I'm sorry, I don't do that. And, you know, for whatever reason, that's like totally not normal in the catering world. It's also not very normal in the private chef world. You know, I assume in your business, if somebody wants something specific, you're going to do whatever they want. Actually, I don't. Uh, So I'm glad you brought this up, you know, because I do think you, you play to your strengths. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not. And I do think people think that because you're a personal chef or a caterer, you can and will do everything. There's some things I don't like to cook. There's some things I know I'm not good at. Like I don't enjoy Americanized Italian food. Like I don't want to come to your house and do chicken parm. And I'm not that good at making homemade pasta. So I feel it's kind of crappy to come and use a 99 cent box of like boxed pasta and then just make like very mediocre food. Like I don't want to do that. And I pretty much tell people I don't want to do that brunch i hate breakfast food and just the other night i was catering like a really nice dinner for these people and they said oh we'll have to have you back for brunch sometime i said i don't do brunch and they said what do you mean i said i don't like it i don't want to do an omelet bar i don't want to schlep a waffle iron out here like that's just not my thing there's plenty of people who do chicken and waffles like but a lot of people would say like sure i can do that no i i let them know like i don't do brunch i don't do breakfast foods and like I'll do, sure. I'll do Italian food, but I'm gonna do I'm gonna propose a menu of stuff I want to make. And if it's not what you want, then I won't make you get it. You're probably just better off finding someone else. And I think that's okay. It's completely okay. And you know, I think like there are some restaurants. I mean, look at Fast Casual. Look at Chipotle. They do one thing. You know, they make burritos. They're not even like authentic Mexican burritos, but like their food is really, I love Chipotle. I don't know if everybody loves it, but their food's really good. They do one thing. If I want a burrito, I'm probably going to go to Chipotle. If I don't want a burrito, I'm not going to go to Chipotle. And it's the same thing with catering. Like why, I don't know why all these catering companies, you know, think that they need to offer so many products. You know, half my clients come to me who want a taco bar, that's common. And if people want a taco bar, I'm an obvious choice, no brainer. The other half are just looking for like affordable food. You know, when these people are getting married and having 200 guests, you can't spend $40 per person if you're on a budget. That's, yeah. It's just a lot of money. And so they come to me for that too, because you know I show them like, hey, you don't really have a lot of options, but you're only getting married once. It's not like you're eating this food every weekend and the quality is going to be great. I promise you. And you know, Oh, and another thing that I do with tastings is 
I just invite my future clients to an, to an event. I'm not putting on like this separate tasting where I'm like cooking everything and, you know, walking them through each dish. Cause it's so much extra time. And we used to do that at the restaurant, but, um, I just invite them to an event. I get permission to do it, but they show up like at an actual wedding, but they walk through the buffet. They try all the food. They see how we put everything out. It costs me $0. Sometimes I'll like buy a bottle of wine and put it on their table. It's like kind of cheesy, but it, you know, they appreciate it. Okay. That's genius. That's genius and kind of weird, but I also am really loving that. No, it works so well. I mean, it would, you couldn't do it most likely the way you do your private chef, but it'd be like inviting somebody, you know, like, Hey, I'm putting on a gig anyways. You might as well come taste it. I don't do tastings. I've talked about this a lot within my community. Like people are kind of stunned. It's like, what do I need to do a tasting for? You don't do a tasting at a restaurant. Like if you want to go out to whatever restaurant, you don't go and ask if you can get a sample of the food. Like you go, you order things on the menu and hopefully you like them. I, there's, I don't have time for, for that. Sure. Like, what am I going to do? I'm going to create a tasting. Like, no, get out of here. No. And I think that there's also this pressure where if the client wants a tasting, I think a lot, you know, we did this at the restaurant when we had, there was pressure to put on a tasting. Like the client wants it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to put on a great tasting. So they book. I've learned now if I, you know, especially with COVID, I haven't been doing tastings. I'm not inviting people to other people's events right now. I just tell them like, we can't do tastings right now. And they're like, okay, well, we're going to book you anyways. And then it's tacos. If you really don't have an idea of what the tacos like, like maybe tacos aren't your thing, right? Right. And I make the same ones every single time. I got it down. If you like tacos, you know, it's going to be great. I send them some pictures. But I do think that's interesting. I think if more people kind of pushed back, like we get to where we are in our industry because something becomes an industry standard. Like what if everyone just stopped doing tastings? You know. Just right. read some reviews, look at some pictures. Uh, and if you have an idea what the food is, why do you need a sample ahead of time? Like, I don't know how we got into this. I didn't really come from the catering industry and know the history of all that. But I, I think it's kind of something that should just go by the wayside. I think it takes up a lot of time and energy when it doesn't need to. Absolutely. What else do you have uh, cooking? Anything besides this that you're working on? Well, I am starting a podcast because, you know, everybody in the world is starting a podcast now, so why not? But uh, yeah, I hear that's a popular my, thing. My podcast is probably, it's, it certainly is, but um, you inspired me a little bit. So I figured if you can do it, maybe I can do it too. <laughs> but um, but uh, my podcast is geared towards the person who is just like, the everyday cook who maybe doesn't have restaurant experience. So like all of the listeners on this podcast may not have a use for mine, but I love it when people just ask me questions about cooking at home. They're like, you know, Hey, my chicken keeps coming out dry. What should I do? And I'm like, Oh, well, you know, have you thought about brining it? Or, you know, I just, that excites me when people reach out to me for advice. So that's something that I'm working on, um, especially now that I have three and a half months of no events to do. Yeah, I would like to figure something else out to bring an income, but I haven't completely come to a conclusion yet. When when COVID first shut down, I was doing taco kits. And that's another thing. You know, my catering company brings in good revenue, but I also, when COVID happened, I put together this taco kit delivery service. I was charging 
for the first one it was thirty five dollars. The second one I did was sixty five, but it was like this prepackaged like big taco kit meal. It fed like six people, and I just put it out on Instagram. Between the two taco kits, I made like profited like ten thousand dollars. That's awesome. And I thought I was just going to get like a few people each week, like, okay, I'll try it. But no, I was doing like 50 deliveries a week. I did all the prep, but you know, you don't need a catering company to do that. You probably need some sort of commercial kitchen space, like maybe at a church or whatever, but you know, anybody can put out this like package of food that sounds appealing because especially now people are probably sick of cooking. A lot of people are hesitant about going to restaurants well, you know, if you can support one of your local deaf guys who's trying to do something, like anybody can do that. So do you think you're going to, are you going to go back to that uh, while you're not doing events or are you just going to focus on something else? I really don't want to, but I will if I have to. It's just, it was a lot of work for the, you know, I made 10 grand, but that was over the course of like, in total, probably like eight or nine weeks. And it was a lot of work. I was doing all the prep, all the portioning. You know, when you're doing 50 deliveries a week, you're also portioning food for 50 different things. And I delivered to 50 different houses in a week. Yeah. And uh, there were some days where I would be out, all the food is delivered cold. So it wasn't like I was trying to get it there hot or something. You know, I, people would reach out with, and I would tell them what day I'm coming. But sometimes I would do 20 deliveries in a day. Well, I would start at 11 a.m. and I'd get home at like 7 o'clock. Like it was an all-day thing. And uh, so I don't, I don't want to do that again. But No, I understand. It's like what I've always talked about is, you know, I have a, I've wanted to build a brand. And my brand is focused on in-home, plated, higher-end dinners. I don't want to be then the guy who's just making like $15 dinners. You know, I you know, I've talked a lot about my pricing structure and how do you say for, you know, 10 years, like my dinners are like a hundred dollars a person. That'd be like, Oh, but you can get this dinner delivered for like $20 a person. Then how do you go back to saying, well, but they're really worth a hundred like chart. You know, if, if you can pull it off for $20 a head, why are people then going to go back to hiring you for a hundred dollars a head? Not that I'm sure, not that I'm stubborn and you know, but everyone talks about pivoting and it's like, well, shouldn't you be doing meal kits? Shouldn't you be doing online cooking classes? And none of that seemed to fit the model of what I was looking to do. So I just kind of hunkered down and started working on the business end of things um, while this was going on, because like you said, it's, it's a lot more work than I think people realize. And at the end of the day, after oh, it's so you, much. you count the pennies, it's like, Oh, you know, I made a thousand dollars. Was that worth it? You know? But you know, on that note too, um, it's so important to charge what you actually believe you're worth. And the first, for example, the first taco kit I did, I charged $35. And it was a little bit less food. And I sold a ton. The second time I did a taco kit, I'm like, all right, I need to charge more money. So it's more worth my time. I charged $65. And it was, it was not double the amount of food by any means. And I sold the same. It's like nobody even batted an eye. And even and, if you, you sold- know, I should just charge 65 the first time. And even if you sold half, I think, in my opinion, it would be better to do, you know, 
20 people at $60 than 40 people at $30. Like if you were going to, you know, even if you did the same, it's like less work for more money. Isn't that how you're supposed to run a profitable, successful business? You're right. And then if you can actually do the same amount of work, you're going to make that much more money. Well, that's what I said. I could go out and work five days a week if I wanted to do $30, $40 dinners, but I would rather go and work two to three days a week and do $100 dinners. Like who wouldn't want to do that? Mm -hmm. And some people, I think, they want to, it's like be high and mighty and say like, well, I want to be for the people and be the caterer for everyone. Yeah. Like, great, go do that. But is that sustainable? Are you able to make a profit? How long are you going to be able to do that? Like, again, talking money, it becomes such like a dirty word and people almost want to talk about not making money. Like it's this big noble thing. It's like everyone is trying to do well and be able to support their family. Absolutely. And then also, you know, when you're, if you were to do five events a week for $40 a person, and if you made that same amount of profit, if that was the case, there's no way that you're going to be able to put out the same quality as if you're doing less events and obviously charging more money. And, you know, from a client perspective, it's better for them to have you only working two or three days a week because you can focus all your time and energy on them. You know, since I only do one event a week, I put all of my energy into one event and 99% of the time it goes perfect because I got nothing else distracting me. And as soon as you start trying to do more, do more, charge less, but, you know, get more client, you're just spreading out your quality. Yeah, it's the race to the bottom. Like who wants to be the Walmart of caterers? I mean, every city has one. And, and like, not throwing shade, but uh, we have a caterer here in town. And I don't know if they were, we had a caterer here in town. I don't know if they were the cheapest, but let me tell you something. During COVID, this guy straight up closed his catering company, took everyone's money and bounced and didn't even tell his clients. And there were all these people who had booked events who then were scrambling around because this caterer was gone. Nobody knew how to get a hold of them. They couldn't get their deposits back and they had no one to cater their event. And let me tell you, he was not the expensive caterer in town. Let's just say that. You get what you pay for. So, you know, one of my favorite questions is what are some of your favorite culinary resources or business tools? What's something that's kind of been great for you? I was hoping you'd ask me this. My favorite cooking tool, hands down, is the Instant Pot. Have you cooked in a pressure cooker? I cooked in a pressure cooker yesterday, so yes. Dude, that thing, first of all, I use it for home use all the time. I also use it with my catering. I have four of the eight quart instant pots and for like, I can cook beans from dry in an hour, no soaking, nothing. And they're perfect. That thing is just, I love it. Other tools, this podcast, I mean, for real, like I I think this is so inspiring for hopefully so many people who are feeling like they're stuck in the industry. I tell people about this podcast all the time. Appreciate it other tools. Okay. I also believe that it is not worth spending any significant amount of money on a chef's knife. You've heard me talk about that, right? I hope on the show. It's like, dude, there was a while where I thought I needed this. It was a $200 shun. It was a stunning knife. I was like, I need this. I'm going to be a better chef if I have this knife. And I got the knife and I was not a better chef. But like you still, no matter what knife you have, you still need to sharpen it all the time. 
And uh, now I use a Victor Knox. You know, it's the brand that makes Swiss Army. It was a $30 knife and I've had it for years and it's the best knife I've ever used. So I guarantee if you go back almost exactly to the date one year from today and listen to one year ago show because we did it right before Black Friday. So I know it was this week. And we talked about, it was like, presents for the chef or food lover in your family. And my guest said a good chef knife. And I came back and we we threw down on the show about it. For the most part, I use my F. Dix that I got from Johnson & Wales that I got issued to me in 1994. Um, if you keep them sharpened, they hold up really well. And I'm a big fan. Like people say, what do you buy? I say, I don't know, when I need a new knife, I go to like Marshall's or TJ Maxx and buy like whatever, if they've got like a Henkel's or something there, or I just go uh, and pick up whatever they have at like the restaurant supply store in town, like a, a $12, $15 chef's knife works for me, you know? But I always had cooks like where I was at. Like, I remember I had a guy who was like 23 and he had like a $250 shun. Dude, always. But like he couldn't, he couldn't roast a chicken properly. Like he didn't know how to caramelize totally. onions without burning them. But he's got this like $250 knife, you know, trying to run before you can walk. I've never found that it's done anything for me. If you just keep a, a basic knife sharpened, you're good to go. I completely agree. And I try to always tell people that because people ask me all the time, hey, I'm getting a knife. What should I get? I'm like, dude, just get a basic knife and keep it sharp. You can sharpen a spoon and cut with that if you want to. Like, it just doesn't matter as long as it's sharp. Uh, any parting words before we get out of here today? I don't think so. Um, I, it, you know, if, I hope that if somebody has like an itch to try to start something and they're at least inspired by what I've done, I hope that they feel that they can reach out. And um, I mean, you can email me. My email is heftercatering at gmail.com. Other than that, you know, I really think that what you're doing and what this whole Chefs Without Restaurants group is doing is so beneficial for the industry. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I hope, you're doing well and I hope this keeps growing. I'm going to be a part of it. Thanks. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. And who, you know, with uh, COVID, you know, I started this last November, so we weren't that far into it, at least the podcast when COVID hit, like, and now I've seen so many people as their restaurants have closed, whether they own them or they're working for them and are out of work. Like there's so many things you can do. And even if it's just a temporary thing or a side hustle, like maybe your restaurant furloughed you and you're going to be down for three months. Like, you can go do a personal chef thing for three months and make some money right now. You know, no one says you have to go. You can, totally. you can do it with like very little money. Uh, so that's why I've wanted to kind of put together these blueprints for how to do it as both a full-time thing, but also a side hustle. Yep. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. For all our listeners, this has been Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. As always, you can find us at chefswithoutrestaurants.com.org and on all social media platforms. Thanks so much and have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.